If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to True Crime, the podcast that helps you find new, emerging, and undiscovered true crime podcasts. I'm Greg, the host and curator of True Crime. Because this is a holiday week, we're going to do things just a little different. Not a lot different, because I know you love your true crime. But you're probably out there finishing up your last-minute shopping or getting your house ready for family to come over, and you need extra content. So that's what we're going to do. All week, we're going to have several more episodes come out, all holiday-adjacent or specifically designed for the holidays. I mean, who doesn't like Christmas crimes? (laughs) Well, today's episode is from Mountain Murders. Mountain Murders is all about Appalachian true crime. Now, we've had them on the show before, and everyone loves them. And I think you're going to also love this episode. If you like today's episode, make sure to check out the episode description for links to subscribe. All right, let's get this show started. Begin. Mountain Murders is an Appalachian true crime podcast. Some content may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. We say fuck a lot. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. And we are finally here with this week's episode. We're here again. You can tell them our uh, soul-crushing event. We had a bit of a fiasco on Sunday, our regular podcast release day. We had great energy, recorded almost the bulk of the podcast. Yeah, I would say 90%. And then realized... That the equipment was not properly connected. Yeah. We were pretty disappointed. It's happened a time or two because I think everyone knows if they've listened, we are uh, not technophiles by any means. (laughs) And uh, it's happened. And and it all, I tell you, it always happens because what happens is basically it's recording through the computer mic instead of our, our good mics and our soundboard, which uh, it sounds horrible. You can actually hear Heather decently. Because she's on, it's on her side, but you can't, I just sound like I'm in a closet. Muffled. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> totally unusable. And every time this happens, it is, and I know people are going to be like, yeah, okay. It's a banger, dude. It's like the greatest episode. I have just, we have great energy. We're feeling it. Mm-hmm. Funny shit. Everybody's just killing it. And then it's just off or not. I feel like we're the only podcast that openly discusses problems snafus and problems well yeah i think they they, no other like all these other professional podcasts 
are very scripted and perfect. They would never be like, oh, I just farted. You know? Oh, that come up the front. (laughs) That come up the front. Yeah. You are disgusting. Well, I'm saying the fat guys out there know what I'm talking about (sighs) when it rolls up around. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, it's got a path of least resistance. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you're suctioned to the seat. This is what happens when he works for extended periods of time. I feel like, oh my gosh. But we are here. We're not rushed, so we're going to do it again, and we're going to have great energy, and it's going to be a fucking banger. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. A big boy banger. I got to say, before we get started, I stumbled upon something, and I haven't stumbled upon something I knew absolutely nothing about in quite a while, and especially true crime related. So I'm on Peacock, shopping around, looking for something to watch, and I come across this docu-series, I think it's three, maybe four parts, called Dangerous Breeds. And I've everybody one of I haven't found anyone else that I know that's seen it. And I've got to tell you, Heather, you've got to watch this. You've got to watch this. Okay, in a nutshell. You described it like if you bought the Tiger King off of Wish. Right? If you ordered the Tiger King Joe Exotica on Wish, this guy, Terry Hart, is what you would get. Some kind of facsimile of the Tiger King, but not quite as good. Okay. Okay. So you have Terry Hart, who is part of the legendary Hart family of wrestling from Canada. You got the Hart Foundation. I'm I'm no big wrestling guy, but the people out there, if you know of wrestling, you know of the Hearts, the Hart brothers, right? Well, he's like a third generation, couple generations down the line, whatever. And uh, he was a sensation. He, he, he's been around wrestling all his life, uh, trained with all his uncles and cousins, and they're all, you know, big wrestling guys. And he was a phenomenon. Signed to the W, uh, I think, WWE at 18, youngest person ever signed. But he is just one of those people who he's his own worst enemy. I'm checking him out. And my first <laughs> observation is he has... Rock hard party nipples. Yes, all the way, all the time. And they're very small. Twenty four seven, tiny nips. That's tiny that's nips. My only observation. That was his nickname, and was, I don't want to give any tiny nips, Terry. Yeah. Okay. And I don't want to give anything away. Oh, I'm sorry. He goes by Teddy Hart. Or is it Teddy Hart? It's Teddy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, folks. Not Terry, but Teddy Hart. <laughs> I think he looks more like a Terry. Anyway, <laughs> he does look like a Terry. And he, uh, this uh, young wannabe filmmaker came across this guy somewhere, another Canadian. And he had, he's one of these guys who always wanted to be a filmmaker, had no money, no sponsors, nothing. But, and I'm sure there's thousands of people out there like that. Well, he had got it in his mind that if he filmed this guy, it could be the next big, this is back in the day when reality TV was all the tits, right? Everyone looking for the next big reality thing. And he thought in the days of like Survivor and yes. early American Idol, right? Yes, when reality TV Man, took over. It was took over everything. Like a plague. <clears throat> and he got it in his head if he found, you know, because he, he in his mind you needed someone who's a character, right? Who's kind of wild and crazy. And then something oddball, which uh Terry or I'm sorry, Teddy loves Persian cats. He raises purebred Persian cats, got like a million cats in his house. And just uh, he thought he started filming this guy and thought eventually he could sell this to a network as, you know, a reality show 
Well, little did, little did he know. This guy's unstable, a wackadoodle, his own worst enemy, and it um, goes downhill from there. And, and that's, here's how I'll, 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 I'll wrap this up. The compelling part is that he literally did film this guy for years and years and years. And so now he has all this footage because it actually leads up at the very end of his interactions with Teddy and Teddy's multiple women in, in and out of his lives. It ends up with the disappearance of, I, th- I think it's Sarah Fiddler. It's Samantha. Samantha. I remember details so good. She is also a Canadian citizen, and she was last seen in Bartow, Florida in November of 2016. Yeah. Yep. Been missing for, what, six years now? That's crazy. That's a long time. Yeah, it's not good. And this was his girlfriend. Yes. So I'm not going to spoil anything. You got to watch it. If you're bored, it's a great little, you know, something you can watch in the evening. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Do you think he had something to do with the disappearance? I'm not. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to ruin. But I think when everyone watches the it, this in their in its entirety, you can make your own judgment. But I think we'll all come to the same conclusion. That's all I'm going to say. That's cryptic, isn't it? He's kind of gross. He is gross. He is gross. I'm not. I mean, one the tiny nips just are very distracting, and then. <clears throat> He's gross. Well, you know what? The women that would come into his orbit, he totally used the heart name, the, you know, heart legacy, as far as wrestling goes, to uh, kind of bring people to him. And he definitely was a manipulator and used everyone around him, in my opinion. He has a shipbird face. Yeah, dude, he totally looks like a guy you would see this like at, at court every time you have traffic court. This guy's like always in court. He's one of those guys. Wearing an Affliction t-shirt. Wearing an Affliction t-shirt, asking for like his sixth continuance. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay, enough of that. You guys seen that guy. Y'all got to check this out. If you have watched this, reach out to me at mountainmurderspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to discuss it with a fan uh, of of that show or a listener here on Mountain Murders because it's it's, it's it's incredible. You got to watch it. Note to self. Note to self. All right, Heather. So, um, how are you doing? I'm good. Okay. All I'm going to say, I'm going to be very vague about this, but I think a lot of people will know where I'm coming from, is I don't like it when chaotic people who are dysfunctional suck a normie into their, or try to suck you into their dysfunction. Yes. Yes. I don't care for that. Either because I was around a lot of dysfunction in my life, you know, growing up and things like that, even in relationships I've had. Um, so, and, and I really don't like that stuff, drama, dysfunction, and I try to avoid it. I do <clears throat> as well. And some people insist on everyone in their orbit or around them um, of making you part of like their- participate. Yes. Right. And yeah, so I just, I had a bit of like an anxious day dealing with dysfunction is all I'm going to say. Yeah. Oh my God. It happens to the I'm best so of us. I'm so happy to be home. I'm happy you're home too. I just want to go hide in the bed. Uh, and <laughs> But we're recording, so I can't do that just yet. Yeah. See, now you're making me sleepy, man. Don't bring me down, bro. <laughs> no, right. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. Let's get into this episode, Dylan. We are... Of course, in the month of December, 
feel like this year has just flown right by. Don't get me started. Okay. We're like, that's what old people talk about. It's like the weather and the year's just going by so fast. Anywho, it's really, um, it's really fucking gone by fast. We are covering cases in Kentucky all month. Yes, we are. For the month of December. But this is a little bit different. Right. So what I wanted to do, because we did spend some time on Dahmer and we missed an episode when we were moving, I thought, why not bring you a double whammy? We have a case from Ohio and a case from Kentucky, and we're going to cover both of those today. Okay. So we're going to have a wrap-up case in Ohio, and it's going to segue right into Kentucky. Yes. Okay. Are you ready uh, i've been ready let's do it let's go what are we doing <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i need you to lead the show to make people that... think that it has structure oh yes i okay. need you i, I need got you, now. you i got your back okay i got your little six <laughs> baby okay a little before 8 30 a.m on thursday february 17th of 1921 that's right dylan strap up we're going in the wayback machine oh god i gotta go clean out the floorboards Gosh, somebody needs to clean up the words in my car. It's literally like a trash can on wheels. So this is 1921, Thursday morning, 8.30 a.m. Siblings, 14-year-old Edward Reitenauer and his 16-year-old sister Edith and a six-year-old boy named Ralph Pickard were trekking through an icy snow along a stretch of Bean Road, now known as Ridgewood Road in Parma, when they spotted something that looked like a bundle down an embankment. So they spotted something kind of odd, out of the ordinary, and I take it they might investigate. Who doesn't want to investigate a bundle? Well, uh, later on, I'll tell our listeners a story about investigating a bundle that I found in the middle of the road in front of our house. You remember that? Oh. <laughs> Don't tell them that story. Oh, that is a That is a bad bundle. <laughs> Maybe I should tell that story behind the paywall. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the children went to investigate because, of course, what do kids do? They're curious. Uh, maybe Santa left behind a pouch of treats, right? So they start to kind of, you know, walk over, try to figure out what's going on. And that is when they saw the bodies of two women on this pathway in front of them. Oh, my God. The three children ran to school. It was a makeshift temporary school, and there were other kids waiting outside. They told everyone what they had seen. Now, normally, the school building was open by now and beginning to warm up, yet Miss Louise Wolf, the principal, and Miss Mabel Foote, their teacher, had not yet arrived, which was very unusual, Dylan. A carpenter named Frank Owen was working on the new school building across the street when a group of students found him. Owens happened to be married to Miss Wolf, Miss Louise Wolf's sister, Lottie. He accompanied the children back to Bean Road. As soon as he saw the victims, he knew one of them was his sister-in-law. Oh, my God. Parma is located in northeastern Ohio and was mostly farmland at the time with only a few thousand people like living in that area. There were no houses along Bean Road, but a few apple orchards. Very desolate stretch of road, Dylan. It almost sounds like a logging, like all those old logging roads or just kind of a footpath, maybe wide enough to have like a horse and cart go through. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally what I'm I'm picturing in my head is you see this all the time around large swaths of farmer's fields. 
it might be large enough to get a car or a small tractor back through there, but it's not a, it's not an actual road. It's a little more than a glorified footpath. Both women were beaten so badly they were unrecognizable. Their skulls were bashed in, their clothing was torn to shreds, and close by, a bloody fence post had brunette and blonde colored hairs wrapped around the end of it. This is a grisly scene. It is very disturbing. Police Chief Frank Smith was now responsible for the most heinous crime ever committed in Parma's history. From the roadway, 38-year-old Louise was lying face down. Her purse was underneath the body. She was wearing one rubber boot, and the other had likely come off during the struggle, and it was discarded beside her. 24-year-old Mabel Foote's body was found a few feet down the road near a fence that bordered one of the apple orchards. She was lying on her back with her arms raised above her head. Her purse was found between the two bodies, but only contained a small amount of change. A black travel bag belonging to Mabel was found with clothes scattered around the bodies in the mud. A broken umbrella was also found nearby, and as I mentioned, it was broken. It was like bent in half. The school day concluded at 3.30 p.m., but the women usually stayed afterwards cleaning and grading papers. Then the two walked together along the same two-mile route to catch a streetcar where Bean Road intersected with state roads. A neighbor of the school had seen the women leaving around 5 p.m. on Wednesday evening. Bean Road was not very well-traveled, and as I mentioned, Dylan, it was desolate, usually very empty, isolated, so no one had seen the women or their bodies until the following morning. Yeah, so unless you're going to the school or to the backside of one of these fields or orchards, it's not going, you're not going to have the public traveling this path, is what it sounds like. A bundle of bloody saplings. I love that word bundle. I've used it twice. You like bundle? I do. Yeah, I like to get bundled. Yeah. That you do. Yeah, you can have some savings. You like to get burglared. Yeah, if you can bundle everything up, I'll give you, like, you a discount. You like to get hamburglared. Ooh, that, I like burgled. That's a great word, too. I okay. like to get burgled. There's a big pile of bloody saplings, Dylan, and about four feet of fence posts discovered. Hairs belonging to both women, as I told you, were clung to the ends of the post, which just really gives me the heebie-jeebies when you think about it. Well, I think that's obvious. Obviously, if not the weapon, something they were struck with this post as well. I mean, because that's, that's very compelling evidence. Well, this post was nearly split in half. Chief Smith determined the post had been used to bludgeon the women to death, which we all can imagine required great strength. This is a four-foot fence post. Yeah. So I don't know the diameter of it, but it's going to be anywhere from three to six or seven inches in diameter. Oh, is I what I forgot. I'm, You're the fence expert. Is what I'm guessing. And in this day and age, it's likely one of the round stakes, or actually it could have been hand-hewn in this day, um, hand-split out of typically a hardwood, like locust or oak or something like that. It's going to last when it has ground contact and take years for it to rot off. So what I'm saying is this is a very substantial heavy post. Sturdy. There's no, it's very sturdy, much like myself. You are sturdy. I am sturdy. Except when I fell down the stairs the other night. Well, you also had been drinking and I kind of felt bad, but then I was like, eh, you get what you deserve. No, I'm okay. No one cares. You, you, yeah, no one cares. Mabel Foote was born April 23rd of 1896 in Brooklyn Heights to Joel and Ella. She had three brothers and a sister. 
She had only been a teacher for about a year at this time. Having graduated from Baldwin Wallace in Berea, Kentucky, she was considered a young woman full of promise. Foote often spent the night with her cousin, Mary Shankford, and would carry a suitcase. Again, remember, she had the black overnight bag. She would often carry this with her. On evenings, she planned to have overnight visits with her cousin. So she'd go to work, then go kick it with her cousin. Yes. And maybe go back to work and then go back home. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. So her parents were not very alarmed when she didn't return home on Wednesday evening. They were like, oh, well, she's spending the night with her cousin, right? Yeah. If she already had her bag, just something she does normally, no big surprise. Because this is back in the day, you're not in constant communication with people. Sometimes you don't see people for days. Gosh, I wish that we still were not in constant contact. (laughs) Honestly, like sometimes I just turn my cell phone off and put it like in a room upstairs or way away from me to where I don't even think about it. And that's a good thing to do. It's so nice. It's a good thing to do. And then people think you died because you haven't posted in five hours. You're the only person I want to talk to. Okay. And you're here. You're you're the only person. You're the only person I want to listen to. Ooh, Louise Wolf's life had been tragic. Her parents had died suddenly when she was young. She and her siblings were sent to relatives or adopted out. Louise and her brother were moved from various relatives, just kind of whoever would take them in at the time. Which has to be very rough on children. Yeah, it sounds you like they're lose whoop. your parents. Yes, and then you're just sort of shoved <clears throat> off in all directions. Well, your whole world falls apart. You know what I mean? Not only are your parents gone, your household's completely different. Uh, you don't know who's going to provide for you. It's just very unsettling. I, that must be horrible. Despite her hardships, Louise managed to put herself through college, becoming a teacher. She shared a home with another woman, which was not uncommon. Um, It was considered economical for unmarried women of that time to live like in a boarding house or roommate with someone. She had taught the um, she had taught at the Parma School specifically for two years before being named principal there. People who were able to get away from work were asked to help search the woods. There was a shack owned by a real estate company, which sat back from the road. Searchers wondered if the murderers or murderer could have used the cabin as a hideout, perhaps even stalking the women beforehand. There were some footprints leading to a chicken coop several hundred yards north of Bean Road. Again, they thought perhaps the murderer had waited in the coop until dark. A pool of blood was found inside the chicken coop, which had been covered up with sticks and debris. But they didn't know if this was from the killer or from chickens being slaughtered before. Okay. So it almost sounds like the sticks and debris, like, you know, maybe some hay had been kicked up over it. So it's an active chicken coop. It is. There's chickens there. Some straw. Yeah. People probably come there and butcher chickens right there and take them away. Okay. That makes sense. Nearby was a water pump as well as a stream, which they considered could have been used to wash away blood by the assailant. Mabel's uncle, Charles Foote, thought perhaps the assailant would return to the scene of the crime, and he spent many nights returning to that area hoping to catch the killer. His visits sometimes made nearby neighbors feel uncomfortable, but he wasn't able to find out any information. So he's just doing everything he can think of. To maybe find out who did this. Yeah, and he's going to do, I mean, he does this for like, you know, weeks and weeks after. Joel Foote, Mabel's father, speculated that tramps 
had done the killings. Oh, wow. You know, I'm telling you what, you know, tramps with uh, just the reputations of ill repute, and they just don't care. They just don't care. Just destroy homes and, uh, you know, just take people's man or woman away from the family. Is that the kind of tramp you're talking about? No. No. Ah, yes. No. Ah. No, we're talking about. You mean the. We're talking more about like the. The American hero like tramp. The, like the lady in the tramp. Like he's a little bit of like an artful dodger or something. You know, like <laughs> an a, artful dodger. Maybe a little wino. Of course, I know you're talking transient. about a transient hobo-like person with no roots, just kind of coming through the area. Someone you might see uh, see one day they're gone the next, or they may stop at one of these farms and work for a few days, make a you know a few bucks, a little coin, and move on. That type of tramp. You're a tramp. Oh, I am a tramp. I'm a trollop. Well, there seemed to be no motive, no robbery, and there was no sexual assault. The Sydney Daily Newspaper called out the fact that Parma had no state constabulary. (laughs) Really? (laughs) That word. I bet no state has what you just said. That's the constabulary. Okay. So they didn't even have constables. Noting, right, the importance of a state legislation known as the Harding Bill, which was making its way through the Ohio Assembly. Because at the time, Parma had only a police chief. They did not have a fully staffed police force. And so from what I've gathered, this Harding Bill was trying to create almost like a state agency, like a state bureau of investigation kind of thing, where... They could send out agents to help with these small communities. And if they did have a police chief or a sheriff, they could maybe post these constables in some of the smaller communities that were more rural. Right. And Yeah, because I, I think this is not something uh, um, that only Ohio is dealing with. I think this is a conversation they're having on the national level at this point. Yeah, this, this is the start period. of like yeah. J. Edgar Hoover. Right. You had the G-Men. Prohibition starting to crank up. Yeah, I mean this federal agents. This isn't that many decades after the end of the Wild West, if you will, and people very well could still just be using private agencies and stuff to find out what happened, like the Pinkerton detectives, and because every town didn't have a police station, cops. You know, there was no law enforcement structure throughout the many states, uh, if any. When the cabin was checked, because remember there was like the old abandoned real estate cabin, it looked disheveled as though someone had hastily left the night before. Authorities drained an old cistern near the scene. It was about 25 feet deep and filled with seven feet of water. Due to the stench, some thought the killer might have felt guilty after committing these murders and leapt into the cistern, like to his death. Okay, they're really... Very dramatic. (laughs) Especially because the boards which covered the cistern had been removed, yet nothing was discovered in the cistern. It was just stank, stagnant water. Likely. I mean, there could have been like a dead animal in there or something, but... Or the girl in the well from like the ring. I don't know. Searches covered barns, outhouses, shrubbery, undergrowth, yet no clues were found. They did close the school down for a week because, again, this is a rural area. They don't have... They don't have any other teachers. These well, I was going to say, they probably teachers. They don't even have any teachers to lead the way there. And the kids were distraught. And it's also scary because their two teachers were murdered, brutally murdered, 
um, not that far from the school, from the sounds of it, walking distance. And uh, yeah, and the person students found them. Yeah, and the person's not been caught. And the entire school, like the body of the school. I mean, they have to be experiencing the, some trauma from this. Well, yeah, right? that's horrible. I mean, it's very scary. Especially, can you imagine? I mean, as a little child, having your school teacher murdered. No, that would have been devastating. No, that would uh, even Just unfathomable. Even today, if you had a little kid in school, or you were a little kid in school. And your teacher's just gone, and it turns out they're murdered, and, and everyone knows it, but, you know, probably talking about it. Um, I, I mean, that would be very, very traumatic. No way around it. A local youth was taken to the death scene and grilled by law enforcement because a finger of suspicion had been pointed at the boy for several days. And it seemed like there was no real reason to suspect this boy other than maybe he was a little rowdy. He must wear black T-shirts and leather. I know. I'm like, what is he, like the precursor to the West Memphis Three? What is he, friends with Jesse Miss Kelly? He's Jesus. Over, yeah, he's rocking out to some death metal bluegrass. And, like, man, please don't let Jesse get interviewed because we're all going to be fucked if he gets interviewed like by the cops. 1921, we don't like the way he does the Charleston. <laughs> it was discovered that a farmer had two male visitors on the night the women were killed. It was estimated they arrived about an hour after the women were murdered, but they had already left by train by the time the bodies were found. In Canton, Ohio, the first suspect emerges. He is a man named Frank Musta, and he's an immigrant. His face, neck, and hands were covered in scratches, and he claimed he had fallen out of a tree. <laughs> okay. So Frank just hangs out in trees. Who knows what Frank's doing on the tree? He's like, yeah, hey, you see that tree there? Yeah, I'm going I'm to climb it. Well, George McFly was hanging out in a tree, and then he fell and because he was a peeping tom. That's true. No right? one ever pointed out that that was some that rather, George was a pervert. That was some rather I deviant behavior. About that. I was that, like, George is a creep. That's pretty creepy. Yeah. There's nothing sweet about peeking at someone when they don't know you're looking. But did Lorraine not know he was looking? Ah, she seemed yes. she seemed like fast and loose. You know how that is a running theme throughout the entirety of the '80s, maybe even into the uh, from the '70s. Peeping Tom of boys, boys doing like looking weird into deviant. the other girls. Uh, well, for one, you got entire movies built on like you know peeking at the locker room, Porky's, all that mess, and uh, just you Animal know Animal House. That whole thing of you've got the John Belushi character yeah. climbing up the ladder, yeah. looking in the window at the yeah. girls, and they're like pillow fighting. And but you know, in all the movies, the girl moves in next door, and they can see straight into her. For one, I don't understand how they always have these big, nice houses with such great natural lighting. Uh, huge and then windows. you find out their dad's like a milkman or something. Yeah, their dad's just like some near do well who's barely you know making it, but they live in this incredible house. Yeah, yeah. On with our story. It's creepy though, and it's not okay. Four days after the murders, the women were laid to rest. Foote's funeral was held at the Pearl Road Methodist Church. She was interred at her family's private cemetery. Louise Wolf's funeral was held at a private home. Detectives attended both services, thinking the killer would show up. And we discussed this off record, Dylan, how that's a very interesting tactic that law enforcement investigators still use today. Yeah. Believing that a suspect or an assailant might come to a funeral or well, return to the scene of the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some pretty big, uh, um, big parts of the way the investigators think nowadays. And I'm kind of surprised that, um, 
it makes me wonder when that kind of started because here we are in the twenties, and that's some of the, two of the things they made sure and do. Well, you you had to what the uncle like? Well, he might return to the scene of the crime, and investigators at the funeral <laughs> taking pictures. Except it's like with the big flash, you know, it's old Tommy and shit that's taking everybody's picture, not not doing it secretly at all. Yeah. What? Do you- what? You know how, like, okay. I, I understand. You know what I'm saying. Vintage photography, Dylan. Yeah. I'm asking, what does that have to do with, what are we talking about? Nowadays. Now you're just saying, like, these old detectives are just showing up, like, taking pictures of the funeral. Like, what does that even mean? In the modern day, they will hide across the street and literally take pictures of everyone coming and going at funerals and, and figure out who everybody is. They can't do it surreptitiously now. the wire too many times, okay? (laughs) They can't do it now, but back in the day, they had to have the big flash and stuff, so everybody's like, why does that guy keep taking pictures? Do you see how his brain works? It's not funny. It's like all over the place. Let's go back. Okay, Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Department and Cleveland detectives were brought in to assist with the investigation. Detectives theorized there was only one killer who knew the area well. It was likely that the killer knew of the women's routines and schedules, indicating that the crime was carefully premeditated. Here's my thought on this, Dylan. The killer had not brought any weapons and used this fence post instead of a weapon, which hardly suggests an element of premeditation to me. You would consider the fence post a weapon of opportunity. Yeah, wouldn't you? Something just laying around. I mean, if this was premeditated, don't you feel like... This person would have had a knife or a gun or a weapon of some kind. Yes, and especially if it's a single person attacking two people. Um, how do you control both of them in the beginning? Um, but uh, the only thing I will say to poke a hole in what you're saying, because I do agree with you, is um, possibly they had a knife or something and then just happened to see the fence post. But this is a strange crime, and it's very rage-filled. I know. There's a lot of rage behind it. It's very rage-filled. There's no obvious motive, sexual assault, uh, robbery, um, or anything like that. These were single women. They didn't have boyfriends. They didn't seem like they had stalkers or admirers. Yes. I mean, I've, I've tried to, like, think of all the reasons why would someone attack these women and there just doesn't really seem to be any reason now because the rage kind of makes it feel personal exactly now there could be it could be one or both of the women likely just one of the women had some kind of a stalker uh some someone trying to who've made it clear that they want to date them or something like that um and they've been rejected and now they're pissed and then the other woman would just got caught up in the violence. I mean that that could maybe explain it because you you did actually stop. You know the routine. Um, you know you know where they're going to be. You know it's desolate, and you know that you can attack them there. So I mean that could be one possibly one explanation. The whole of law enforcement involved agreed this type of murderer traveled alone. I don't know what made them think about that, but. This is what they concluded. And no matter how hard the area was searched, there was nothing left behind by the killer. Like not a zip, nothing. They found not a single item they think the killer had. For some reason, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office and city policemen adopted a theory that the killer was mentally deficient in some way. So neighbors were questioned about whether there were any, quote, halfwits around or halfwits they'd seen around. 
Okay, this was a long time ago, and they still use words like moron and halfwit to describe someone they thought was either dumb or mentally deficient. Well, I feel like in modern day, people might use that word to describe you sometimes. A halfwit? Maybe. I thought you said that I was a full wit. No. No? Okay. All right. I don't even know if your cup is half full, Dylan. Sometimes I think that you're about a quarter of the way full. Now, now, you're like a quarter wit. A quarter of a wit? Well, let's quit talking about it because it's going the wrong way. Okay. Sometimes I feel like a three quarters of a wit. I feel pretty good. Good for you. Um, but so, okay, for one, I'm curious what would lead them to believe this. In my head, maybe one thing that does is they're going to think uh, this is a brutal crime. Um, that someone who's normal, quote unquote, would not do this. And so it is has to be someone possibly who is not all there in their head. You think maybe that could be it? That assumption sounds like something that a quarter would now, come up with. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say something, and I hope that this plays out. And then one of the guys could have been like, well, you know, he must have had retard strength. To hit people with that post like that. You think that could have happened? No, we don't use that word. I know we uh, don't use the, that word, but I, they're calling half wits and morons. I'm talking about them back then. We're getting canceled. <sighs> okay, I should okay, I should have said our word, I guess. I mean, I'm sorry. Okay. But someone could have I mean I'm, I'm not even trying to be funny. This here. is fine. We've already established that Dylan is a quarter wit. Yeah, well, there you go. And if I am a quarter wit, I can say the word. I, I so, think I'm going to go with your first <laughs> hypothesis. That they think someone normal couldn't do this. Right. That this person had to be. Okay. You know, there had to be something wrong with this person for them to just fly into a rage and commit murder. And I do apologize if that was offensive to anyone, that dumb joke I said. Oh, my gosh. We're going to have so many one-star reviews. <sighs> Someone's going to write and be like, I am an R word and I don't appreciate you calling me that. Well, if I, I was, am, I, would, I am one. <laughs> I would take the word back if it was me. I would use it all the time. I would just holler at my boys and stuff. But like, well, well, I guess <laughs> technically you can since you're a quarter wit. Yeah. See, that's what I'm saying. You're really hyper. I can make fun of fat people too. You quit wiggling around your little seat over there. <sighs> I feel like you want to go dancing or something. I don't know. I feel good. Do you want to like, dance your I pants I, off? I think I actually got sleep and I'm happy not to be you at should work. put your pants back on and stop dancing them off. Okay. Enough of Dylan and his non-PC verbiage. A Parma Township trustee named J.D. Loader had reported seeing two strange men pass by his house with muddy clothing and no hats. Oh, my God. How dare these That's... men be about without a chapeau? Atop their heads. That's what drew my attention to them. I noticed they were uh, they were bareheaded. It's very unproper. bareheaded, and nobody was doing the allegiance or nothing. So I didn't understand what was going on. Well, I guess back then, you know, you never saw a man without his hat. People had way more style back then. Public. Even the people that was like uh, considered probably on the lower rung on, on on as far as poverty and the economics go, probably had more style than we have nowadays. You know what I mean? Seriously. I have style. They had their good clothes and stuff they'd put on to go to church and stuff. I have good clothes. I have a clean pair of sweatpants that I wear sometimes in public. <laughs> like, the, the ones that don't have bleach stains. She got her she got her sweat sweatpants on with no lint balls. Something's going on. Something big must be happening tonight. <laughs> she has her fancy sweatpants that don't have holes. So a woman <laughs> who lived near Bean Road 
um, told the sheriff that a strange man had been peering in the windows of her home and that he had a club. Which would startle me. Yeah. I must admit. Um, that would be scary. That would scare the shit out of me right now if I saw that. Um, but, you know, I wonder why she didn't come to the sheriff just reporting that, you know, aside from this other event. Well, this was a day before the murders. And when she confronted the man about what he was doing, you know, on her property, he grunted at her. Mm. So. Ah. <laughs> That's a really strange grunt. Mm. Um, so this was a full-on caveman. Mm-hmm. Basically, this is a Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was I like, I don't know how to He also had a very protru- a protruding forehead and mm-hmm. was eating a huge bone with meat on it. Was he like Henry VIII? And he's a fucking full-on uh, <laughs> caveman with like the leopard print. Conspiracy theory. Henry yeah. VIII was a caveman. Okay. I just imagine he walked around like eating a turkey leg all the time. And I don't know why I have that image. Of this king in my head. But I just imagine he's constantly eating a turkey leg. Wasn't he like a jolly fat guy? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know anything about him either. I probably should have paid attention. They didn't teach that in my school. Investigators checked out every tip, no matter how small. They were really grasping to find a lead. A reward was collected by various school boards and civic organizations, eventually totaling $10 thousand dollars wow which by 1921 standards was a lot of cheddar dylan there's a lot of money yeah i don't even know what the inflation rate would be adjusted to that today i don't know but i'm gonna guess that's more like having a hundred thousand dollars that's a that's a wild ass um, guess that's great that's a that's a great (laughs) number dylan dice and round all those zeros God, so many zeros. Yes. Man, I'm whispering so good today. <laughs> so good? <laughs> what? Locals were being asked to submit fingerprints. Deputies were really trying to take every approach to solve this case. And most of the locals were willing to hand, you know, hand over their fingerprints because they wanted to solve this crime. Well, yeah, this is a, a shock, a truly shocked community. And everyone's uh, beside themselves about who did this. And finding out what happened, I'm sure. In April, police received a letter from a person claiming to have witnessed the murders. It was signed a Lorraine Avenue citizen. Detectives quickly began hunting down the letter writer. During questioning, the writer told detectives that he had sent this letter and he did confess to being the killer. Uh, he's He's like, you got me. An expert said the fingerprints found on one of the teacher's uh, books was very close to that of the letter writer. Now, remember, they're doing this like visually. Well, I must say. Like run through a computer program or something. All the way up until you got like, what is it, Codec or some of the large systems online and start allowing computers to do that. That was the technique. And there's actually a lot of uh, um, thoughts throughout the day that it was flawed. The, the comparison of fingerprints because it was just a visual comparison done by a human. So, yeah. And then you find out you've got somebody in there who's got like the worst eyesight ever, but refuses to wear glasses. <laughs> right. I'm like, dude, you're That's a, my luck. You're a fingerprint auditor. You have to be able to see, but like, you can't control me, you son of a bitch. I can see just fine. You take them bifocals and you can shove them right where the sun don't shine. That is a gorgeous red shirt you're wearing. Sir, it's blue. <laughs> I know. I'm there. <laughs> Okay, oh my so God, he's blind. This... He shouldn't be doing that job. <laughs> <laughs> it 
That's scary. Now you're being an ableist. Okay. So this, uh, you've got me so far off here. This letter writer, by the way, who was not publicly named, um, he was also a known peeping Tom, and other witnesses had seen him in the area before the crime. Okay. So, well, this is something to pay attention to and, and if I was in the investigator. Well, when detectives took him to the murder scene, he was unable to recreate it. Like, they took him there. They were like, show us how you did it. Show us what happened. Where were the bodies? How did this go down? And so he's just like, uh, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Professor. Ooh, what happened? He's like, okay, hold on a second. Let me see. Okay, so I came over here. Wait a minute. And he's looking at them for like a reaction. I came over here, and he just moved real slowly over there. Warmer. <laughs> Am I getting warmer? Uh, he didn't. So I am ice cold, ain't I? He didn't have a clue. No. He didn't have a clue and about so details. Police were like, he really gathered this information from newspaper reportings and like word of mouth, because he, he didn't know shit when they got him out to this crime scene. All the details he could give was known to the public. He told police that his family had helped him burn the bloody clothing that he was wearing, an accusation they adamantly denied. And it was pretty clear to law enforcement that this man was mentally unstable and suspected the confession was a result of his mental state. Wanting to interject himself into this big story. Okay. And that happens. It happens all the time. Alienus did not believe he was the killer either. He was assessed and it was determined they thought he had the mental capacity of a child. So is this a guy with the crazy hair telling me that aliens built the pyramids? The alienist? <sighs> no, Dylan. Uh, so what is an alienist, it's Heather? You had to tell me. Basically like an old school psychiatrist. Who oftentimes works with investigators to delve into the psychology of perpetrators or criminals, correct? They could. They yes. do, but basically they're a badass psychologist. Sure. Who can do things. Yes. And see things and details mm. that you would never notice. There there was a TV show, right? Yeah. The, yeah. the Alienist? Yeah. And that's what it was called. I never watched that. Yeah, it's but it wasn't that good. You watched it? Yeah, a little bit. A couple oh. eps. Okay. Some students had overheard a conversation between Mabel and Louise. Apparently, Mabel had met a stranger along Bean Road the day before the murders. He had asked her about catching a streetcar. Now, it sounded pretty innocent, right? But investigators were hungry for any information that might lead to an arrest, so they were trying to track down this, this man and find out his identity. So they're just literally beating the bushes and continuing with the investigation. They're doing everything in their power to try to get some kind of a lead. I mean, they really are. Which is admirable because they're working with limited information, limited resources. They're trying their best. Well, you know, it is admirable because uh, they 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 don't have very much to work with. And in, in my book, they're doing a much better job of it, of trying than uh, many law enforcement agencies and many other stories we've told in the modern day. Two men were being held at the Ohio State Prison, and they were questioned about this crime, but it was another dead end. I don't know why these two men were questioned if they were locked up. Maybe, yeah. maybe they thought they knew somebody who knew somebody who did it or something. Or maybe they were sure. recently locked up. I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm not sure, Dylan. Investigators thought they had their man when a suspect named Fred Goatling emerged. A criminal with a record dating back to 1905. After this, he would be arrested for an axe murder in 1923 in Cleveland. So, guys, got a violent past and has a violent future after these murders. But he was found to be insane, and he was taken to the Lima State Hospital. Eventually, it was discovered that his confession was false because he had told the police he was responsible for this. Okay. and But he went on to be an axe murderer. He did go on to commit an axe murder. Wow. That's crazy, dude. Years later, police were still collecting evidence and tips, but not all of it has been revealed to the public. In 1932, shrubs were planted to memorialize Mabel and Louise in the corner of Brookside Park in Cleveland. Cuyahoga County teachers placed a fountain at the site, and some other teachers donated a bench. But this is one of the like longest unsolved cases in Ohio history. So this is, at this point... Uh like a part of the lore of the state, especially the area, or like an urban legend. Yeah. I mean, you've got school teachers murdered. It's unsolved. It was definitely a story that made its rounds. And I'm sure for years to come, especially there around Parma, people would be like, oh, don't be out by yourself. Or, you know, remember what happened to those teachers. And I'm I'm looking at photos of uh, the teachers here. And uh, they were attractive women. They were. They were uh, fairly attractive women. Uh, Miss Foot and Miss Wolf. Um, they're cute. And well, I, you know that that period makes everybody cute. You think everybody was cute in that period? I, the women and even the men look distinguished in all the photos. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, like Louise Wolf, well, she she kind of has that like I think it's called uh, is it George. Georgian style hair. I'll think of what it's called. Um, she puts me in the mind of the uh, motif that Amy Winehouse would use with her hair and stuff. She kind of looks like her. You think so? Eh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm thinking of Edwardian hair. I don't know what it's called. Yeah, but Mabel Foot is. Yeah, like Edwardian hair. I guess that's what I'm, I'm trying to think. I think of like Downton Abbey and it's kind of like this sort of updo. Yeah. It's kind of a bun, but has like some volume to it so she's got that hairstyle which i always um i do like that so i see what you mean by cute it's, yeah mabel foot is uh she's really cute mabel is very cute she's a really pretty young woman and she's got her little tiny like little cute gr- glasses yeah and she's got the little short bobbed yeah flapper hair almost so honestly in the one possibility we put forth that one of the women had a suitor unwanted suitor Turned into stalker, and you know the other woman just got caught up in. Uh, given their ages and everything, you know maybe it was um, Miss Foot, Mabel Foots, who was twenty four years years old. Uh, you know, had a a stalker, a boyfriend, or not a boyfriend, but a unwanted a suitor, spurned, a spurned lover, love interest, or something. Yeah, you you just never know. And actually, um, that really kind of makes sense if you think about it. That there was someone pissed off at one of the ladies, and then the other one just, just was caught up in the violence. To be caught in the because crossfire. they knew that's where they could catch them by themselves. And it's just very sad. 
it is a very sad story. It's just sense, totally senseless violence. There's just no motive, even if you don't agree with the motive. Um, at least, like you said, it, it gives you a little bit of why, which is why. Well, yeah, I think that's what's so haunting about this story is we have no motive. And our true crime minds, I would say the majority of, of listeners have that true crime mind that wants to know why. I think it's the biggest reasons that a lot of us listen. Or watch true when crime. there's no motive, like Jeffrey Dahmer. We just covered Dahmer. And there's really not a whole lot of motive there. No. Right? I mean. No. No, but I will say I have, you know, he always acted like uh, them dying was just a byproduct of what he was really out for. I don't believe that. I think he enjoyed um, the surprise because he would go from. I'm not gonna say he didn't have no motive, but I guess it's just like when you start delving into the like why. It's like why are you doing this? I, I mean, guess you, just, you could you really have a good answer. I guess you could say the sexual sexual motivation yeah, I guess gratification so. for him. But um, I okay, think maybe he, I'm just completely wrong. I should have just not. I think he enjoyed all of it. I think he enjoyed uh, surprising them, going from boring. Let's just uh, I just want to take a couple pictures, Jeffrey, to a monster. I think he enjoyed that. And I think that's how he surprised people because he's very disarming. And then he would be a maniac who does not mind killing you. Like, oh, my God. He's making a serial killer like his whole personality. <laughs> um, and, yeah, he's a piece of shit. Like, calm down, guy. And he got beat to death. Eh. So. No love lost. Now what are you going to do? You shouldn't have killed all those people, bro. Let's continue on. So that is... The end of our jaunt through Ohio. We're going to cross state lines, Dylan. We're going to get all up in old Kentucky. Unbridled spirit of Kentucky. I can smell that bluegrass from here. Oh. It's got me me itching. You know what I'm saying? I got some allergies. Oh. All right. Let's go. You just continually like gross me out for some reason. That was gross? Just the way you... Yeah. Oh, baby, I want to scratch it. Uh, okay, stop. <laughs> <laughs> My whisper is on 1,000 right now, I got to say. This is why I'm mean to him. Can this I do a whole episode him. by myself where I just whisper? You're just a quarter wit. Shut up. Okay, let's get into this. We're going to be talking today about the Ashland tragedy, as it has become known. It is one of the Bluegrass State's most notorious crimes, and it took place in the 19th century. Oh, let's go. No, I love these old cases. I do, too. I do, too. They tend to not have as much coverage, not be as famous. And you can dig them up, and I love to be able to dig up like the old newspaper articles. I've always I like all of it. I've always found the um, investigators, if they are available, and the community's reaction to these brutal, horrible crimes back in the day to be very fascinating. Oh, you just wait. You yeah. are in for a wild ride. Delivery. Well, it's just so it's so long before. You know, uh, taped off crime scenes, everything locked down, and you happen to be outside and wait for answers. This is back in the day when people was just like bringing their kids through the crime scene and shit. If you, you know, pay a nickel, you can see the body. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. so it's totally fascinating. I know people want to act like true crime isn't ethical today, or like it was, or didn't people exist. are so morbid now, and right. I'm like, are you kidding? They used to display people. I mean, in the West. They really would charge you like a nickel to go through a crime scene. Yeah. People would be stealing, like, items off the murdered, the deceased person. Yeah. The, well, they took raisins from the cake, right? Yes. The Lawson family Christmas episode. You remember that? 
Yeah. So no, but it, this certainly isn't new. If anything, we're we're less morbid now because we. I mean, that they, they don't go kill a, a whole gang of outlaws and you know string them up and leave them hanging in front of the courthouse for two weeks. You know. Yeah. Now we're just idle and we don't have um, all this hard work to do, so we have times to sit around. Time to sit around and um, philosophize about things like ethics. Oh yes. Right? Oh, yes. Because you're not out playing on a field. Okay, anyway. It's very unethical. Let's get into this case, Dylan. And speaking of Christmas, and we're in the month of December, the story takes place in December. Oh, here we come, Kentucky. It was actually December 23rd of 1881 in Ashland, Kentucky, which is in Boyd County, that Robert and Fanny Gibbons, ages 14 and 18, were kicking it with their cousin, Emma Thomas, who was just a few days shy of turning 14. Now, Fanny was 14, Emma was about to be 14, and Robert is the older one. He's 18. Okay. All right? So they're just cousins hanging out. I think most people can relate to that. Yeah, man. You don't you don't want those drag. It's such a drag having adults around, you know? <laughs> I was just thinking about, I think a lot of folks growing up in the South and in Appalachia specifically, we come from like big families that live very close to each other. So when you're growing up, your cousins are almost like your siblings and they're really your first like best friends growing up. Yeah, man, I don't think that's exclusive to the South or Appalachia. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, you got those big families and like it seems like in Boston they got big families, seems like for some reason. Okay, well, I'm just thinking about here. Up in the holler, you got a whole damn family living up there. Well, and who else are you going to hang out with besides your cousins, you know, family, people you likely know already? My goat. You don't get to hang out with strangers. I'm going to hang out with my goat. Okay. In my holler. A holler goat? Okay. Ain't no holler back goat. He might be. Don't judge him. Uh, J.W. Gibbons, their father, was out for the night, as well as their mother, who was visiting their older sister, who was married and lived in, uh, living in Ironton, along with their 11-year-old brother named Sterling. Emma lived across the street, so her mother had no issues with the girls spending the night, like even though the adults wouldn't be there in the house. It was fine. Mom's across the street. Stone throws away. Yeah. So this all seems like, you know, safe enough, right? I would do it. I mean, you know, I wouldn't have a, I'm saying I wouldn't have a problem with that. If you have an 18, what'd you say, 18, 14, 14 11? 13? Yeah. I mean, you got basically a young adult there who's going to look out for him. The three teenagers were likely excited about the upcoming holiday. I imagine them tending to the fireplace. Maybe they were stringing together popcorn for decorations. Oh, Yes. Right? Have you ever done that? Yeah. It's tedious. Yes. My mom had this great idea. She was going to do this very traditional Christmas tree one year and made me string popcorn, and it was a lot. It lost it. It loses its luster very quickly. Yeah. It was like with a needle and thread, and it was the most <laughs> bullshit thing I've ever done. In the early morning hours, perpet- see, it's shit like that that makes me not festive. <laughs> it makes me bah humbug and why I don't go out of my way to do shit. I don't decorate. I'm like, fuck this, because that's like how I had to spend my childhood was like stringing popcorn and stuff. You know, I don't like to decorate. Using hot glue guns to make weird ornaments. I don't want to take it all down and put it away. So I feel like if I don't put it up in the first place, I don't have to worry about it. I know. Simple times. In the early morning hours, perpetrators broke into the home using a crowbar to pry a window open. Robert, who was disabled, was hit with a blow to the head from an axe. The two girls were sexually assaulted. 
Fanny was hit with an axe, and Emma was bludgeoned to death with the crowbar. Jesus. This is horrible, Dylan. The bodies were doused in coal oil and set on fire. The assailant or assailants thought they would make the fire, you know, look like an accident, and in turn, it would cover up the crime. Crimes. So burn down the house, burn all the victims up, and they'll think it's a fire. Sometime between 5 and 6 a.m., Mrs. Thomas saw that a bedroom in the Gibbons' home was ablaze. She spread the alarm, and neighbors helped to put out the fire. While some furniture was saved, most of the home was destroyed. Nothing was left, really, but the chimney. But the bodies of the three children were eventually found and pulled from the house, and they were laid upon a mattress. It was assumed the children had suffocated on the smoke and had been burned in the fire. However, when the morning sun, you know, shed light upon what had truly happened, the bodies had been horribly mutilated. And upon further examination, it was found that all three had been brutally murdered. So when the morning light came up and they could see the victims well, they, they immediately realized this is more than a fire. And there was no denying how they had all died. Robert's body was barely burned at all. Yeah, and he was um, um, immediately attacked and incapacitated with an axe, which is going to leave some horrible wounds. It's interesting to me that the whole house burned, but the bodies were barely burned at all. Yeah, I'm well, not sure how that works. Well, I will, I will point out that it was probably a less intense fire than we would have nowadays. Because we really do have a lot of uh, petro um, petroleum products, your couch, the foam, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff that are petro based, and it would go up and make a very intense fire. In this day and age, there's way less of that, and uh, I would say the fire is quite a bit less intense. Okay. Have you if you've ever set just a regular couch on fire and seen how fast it goes up and how hot it is? You'll know what I'm talking about. I'm. You dare would, I ask why you, I said it's couch on how fire? How you know this? Oh yeah. Well, the, oh, I guess that sounds bad. Let me please let me explain. I had an old couch one time. Need to be taken. No couch. Just no couch. Had its old couch. Got You know. You know how it happens down here in the south. At first, it's in the living room. It's your. It's your new couch. It's your sitting couch. It's your sitting couch. And then it might end up on a covered porch out front. And then it's your porch sitting. And it's couch. your porch couch. Okay. Where you sitting? Look. And then them damned old dogs ruin that. You know they don't know no better. And then now you got to get rid of it. It's your get rid of couch. I lived way on a mountaintop. Didn't have a truck. I was like, I'll just burn this son of a bitch. You know, I'll burn it down to the mattress or to the springs, and uh, then I'll get rid of the springs. It'll be easy peasy. I'm not going to lie to you. It was some god-awful ghastly. See, when a man says, I'm not going to lie to you, I know you're about to fucking lie. But go ahead. Early 90s floral pattern. It was god-awful couch. Um, Did you pick this couch out? Nah, hell, I don't know if it was there when we moved. It's a couch somebody gave me, you know, whatever. In your younger days, you just don't even know how you get shit. You ain't got to lie, Dylan. You picked out this nice No, this, this was well before I was going mm-hmm. in furniture stores picking stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, had the couch, going to burn it. Had about 30 feet from the trailer. <laughs> Set, of course. <laughs> well, we did. Uh, I did live in a, it was a, it was a very large trailer on top of a mountain. Was it like nice a triple wide? It was extra wide, like 80 foot or something. It was like, it was huge. 
Huge. Oh, okay. You couldn't even see from one <laughs> end, one fancy. end of the kitchen slash kitchen dining like living way, room, like way nicer than the trailer I grew up in. Yeah, this was okay trailer. I set the some bitch on fire, dude, and I'm 30 feet from the trailer, and the you know there's a mountainside and trees and all that uh, above me, uh, and I thought I was gonna set everything and fucking side on fire. I'm not lying to you about the intensity of this fucking couch going up once I just barely lit it. And it's all that damn, just what I described. Foam, paddings, all that. It's just pure, you know, it's pure gas. It's pure petro. Wow, that was a really thank, long sidetrack. Thank you for sharing with us. And but it now does, we return to true crime. It doesn't surprise me that this home was ablaze. But the fire wasn't intense enough to uh, burn the bodies up. Once the bodies were examined by like a medical professional, it was determined that the two girls had been sexually assaulted. The community reeling from such a horrific murder scene sprung into action. Tracks leading in and out of the house suggested there were actually three perpetrators. Wow. A committee was formed which raised money to pay an investigator. Again, we're in another small town that does not have... Someone equipped to deal with a homicide. So they're having to turn to a private, privately paid investigator. Yes. A man named Norris was hired, and they also were able to raise a $1,000 reward, which again is big money. This is the 1880s. Wow. That Wow. Okay. From the start, Ashland's community was fired up. Talks about lynching the perpetrator spread. For a town filled with iron workers, mountain men, and rivermen, this was no joke. I mean, these were tough guys. And they meant business. Okay. So the first time I heard this, you you laid it off when we were recording it, it didn't work. And I was just taken aback by the story from here out. I, mean, <laughs> I told you it's a wild ride. It's horrible what happened to these kids, obviously. Brutal murder. But this, what you're about to get into, is I find it completely fascinating. This is why I had to go with this case. Okay. Because, yeah, it is it is wild time. This is one of the craziest uh, things I've ever heard. It was determined the crowbar and axe belonged to the Gibbons family. Now, it was speculated at first that the killers knew the Gibbons family, and they had to know the home well enough to know that Mr. Gibbons kept this crowbar specifically under the porch. The assailants would also need to know the parents would not be home on this night, leaving the kids, like, unprotected. It was inevitable that suspicion first fell on J.W. Gibbons, the children's father, known as George. His whereabouts were unaccounted for at the time of the murders, and he had not resurfaced since the bodies were discovered. A U.S. marshal named Heflin uh, would eventually work to clear George's name. Gibbons was known as a man who could be abusive to his wife and children. Mrs. Gibbons often described him as having two personalities. When he was financially solvent, Gibbons boasted that his wife and children were the best in the world. Ah, so when things are good, he, he's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. But when he was down on his luck, Gibbons was violent. He had threatened to burn down the house a number of times and had made threats to decapitate members of the family with a hatchet. 
There had been incidents when he'd urged his wife to commit suicide and also threatened to take his own life on other occasions. Mrs. Gibbons had taken the threat seriously enough that she had hidden the butcher knife from him. My, what kind of personality disorder is this bullshit? So when things are good, everything's fine. But when they're not good, you lash out and uh, uh, terrorize everyone around you that you uh, allegedly love. That's not how. That's not how all dads are. No. Oh. Now, um, um, financial. When I'm insolvent, me personally, can it can make me depressed? It can make me depressed. Uh, very strongly depressed. Finances can send me into a tailspin. Worrying. I don't know why. Yeah, you've seen evidence of this before, right? And I it's have. A, it's just. Uh, it's. I, I think that comes from. I want to. I want to provide. I want to you provide. You want to be a baller. I want. To, I don't. Shot caller. I don't want to be a shot caller. You want some. I rims do not need twenty-four inch rims on my Chevy Impala. God, I wish you had an Impala. I wish I had an Impala, but. I couldn't imagine it making me want to beat you up or, or threatening. I know that shit wouldn't play with you because you're not having that shit in your life. But I just, it's insane. It's crazy to me. I mean, these are some very scary, horrible things he's saying to, uh, I'll, I'll kill you. I'll cut your head off. You know, I'll kill everybody. Again, I'm asking, this is not normal. I'll set the house. Because this sounds like my childhood. I'll set the <laughs> house on fire. Like, okay, dad. I love you mean you your too. dad's never threatened to burn your house down? <laughs> I love you too, Dad. Bye. I gotta go. My dad threw. No, for real. I'm gonna kill everybody. I know, Dad. Like I know, Dad. Every other week. I know you're gonna burn the house down. Usually leave the threat on the answering machine. Oh, and God, I wish. I'm sorry. Let me say this right quick. I'm not even kidding. The other day, I was thinking about how awesome and all the awkward things that would happen when you had the physical answering machine with a tape in it, and you'd like play your messages, like when you had company or. Just all these different funny scenarios in my head. Like somebody would say something that you didn't want other people to hear playing back on the message. Oh, good times, good times. We should bring that back. You should have to like play your voicemail like aloud for people. <laughs> I don't ever get any voice messages. Me either. Somebody leaves a voicemail. I'm like, oh, God, I must be a bill collector. <laughs> okay. Gibbons had convinced his children had turned. I mean, he, he thought his kids had turned against him. Um, but Mrs. Gibbons had ensured law enforcement that the children were terribly afraid of their father and his mood swings. Uh, I can't blame them. Yeah. Who wouldn't be? Gibbons, who was a carpenter by trade, became the top suspect until he appeared on January 2nd, having been in Lincoln, West Virginia since December the 19th. He had not heard about the children's murder until returning to Ashland. He was able to provide an alibi for his whereabouts at the time of the murders, and it was enough to convince police of his innocence. He had been out of town working this whole time. However, Norris, you know, the private investigator they hired, and others had two other suspects in mind. Willis Hockaday, a black barber, and another black man named Noah Kendall. Why doesn't this surprise me? You know, always in these cases. They were arrested in Louisa about a week after the murders. The circumstantial evidence, if we want to call it that, was <laughs> meager, Dylan. Hockaday had gotten drunk in public, then started discussing the three murders, which were on everybody's mind because of the brutal nature of the crime. I mean, this was what everybody was talking about. Finally, the men were released on January 2nd. 
So they were taken into custody for being black, for being drunk, and talking about the murders in public. Yeah, and, and it sounds like... When everybody's talking about it. They're just like, oh my God, people's killing people out here. You know, I'm running his mouth, being a little loud. But it doesn't sound like he's screaming, I, I did it. No. But that was all it took for him to be taken. And then his, his buddy didn't even do that. No. He was just like hanging out. Like, hey, you need to shut up, buddy. <laughs> you know, what the fuck? A bricklayer from Ashland named George Ellis had reportedly been acting strangely since the murders. It was on the morning of January 2nd that Ellis confided in a shopkeeper named J.W. Powell that he, his wife, and two others knew about the murders, and he was convinced someone might turn state's witness. Oh. Finding the statement to be concerning, I should say so, Powell went to find the marshal. Ellis was arrested later in the day. Nice. Ellis showed overwhelming remorse. He confessed in front of three committee members, because remember, they formed a committee. He implicated two accomplices, an iron mill worker named William Neal and a farmer named Ellis Craft. The three men had spent time working for both, uh, well, for Powell, the shopkeeper. They had also worked at Houses Brickyard and at Norton Ironworks together. So these were three men who had worked together, were friends. They knew each other very well. Okay. According to Ellis, Neil and Kraft had months earlier been boasting about these two teenage girls named Fanny and Emma and were stating that by Christmas they would have sexual intercourse with them. What society is this okay for someone to talk like this? I mean, I have to believe that even back then, things were a little different. You know, girls married off younger and all that mess. Not uncommon to be pregnant around 15, stuff like that. Um, Just wouldn't most men, grown men, not think this is okay? Or you just think that just like nowadays you have good guys and you have just pieces of shit and that a lot of them are just so creepy in their thought. Well, I think that's... You think people were more creepy in their thought back then that more people would agree with this? Or do you think it's just always been you got the handful of fucking weirdos? I think there's always been good versus evil in the world, Dylan. This is a good answer, Heather. I think you have some people with a moral compass, a sense of right, rightness, righteousness, and then you have shipbirds. Okay. Right? Yeah. And those things don't change. Shipbirds don't change. You know, people are like, oh, things were so much better back in the day. And it's like, back in the day, people were still as fucked up as they are today. They just didn't have fucking internet. They just weren't out there making TikToks, letting you know all the fucked up shit they do. Right? Oh, I tell you, you know, you always hear people, oh, my God, is humanity like on a some kind of a course? Again, people used to pay money to tubes. go see dead bodies oh, at pe- murder scenes. Humans have always been messed up. And the things we do to each other has always been horrible. I believe that. That's why I'm going to join that movement that we should just eradicate ourselves. Is that a movement? Yeah. Have you heard of it? It's very narcissistic. Is that the right word? It's what? um, Gnostic. Um, Narcissism. Nihilistic? Nihilistic. That's what I meant. Hmm. So there, there's a, a club that wants humans just to decide well, to I offer. I feel like that's, yeah, that that would be the best thing to do to save the planet. <laughs> Come on, guys. I mean. Where is the lie? On the night of the murders, 
Ellis was awakened by Neil and Kraft, who asked him if he, quote, wanted to go have a little fun. No. A, it's the middle of the night, and when you ask me like that, I don't think it's anything good. Ellis was hesitant to join the men until Kraft put a pistol in his face. Oh, you're going to have some fun with me, bud. That's how I'm going to wake you up in a few hours. With a pistol in my face? Like, we're going to go have some fun, Dylan. Oh, no, no. We're going to have so much fun. Fun. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Damn, I'm scared anyway. Good. You don't even have a pistol. <laughs> Why do I feel like you would do your little fingers? Beep, beep, Because I will. Beep. I was going to get a banana. I was uh, going to have a banana gun. Uh, what the fuck? <laughs> Out of fear for his life, Ellis joined the men. He said Kraft killed the Gibbon siblings and Neil killed Emma Thomas after saying he was worried she knew who he was. Police exhumed the bodies of the three victims and were able to piece together what had happened based on Ellis's story. Although Ellis insisted he had only been a spectator and forced along for the ride, Marshall Heflin did not believe him. In his opinion, Ellis was the ringleader and had only confessed because he was worried the other men would talk first. Police arrested Neil and Kraft, who adamantly denied Ellis's version of events. Neil eventually buckled during questioning and admitted what had happened, but Kraft was a holdout, refusing to confess, and never, ever once will admit he had anything to do with this. He's he will a, proclaim his innocence until the end. He's a real one. Is he? Yeah, he's ride or die. So now- I feel like you gotta be. If you're gonna do a crime, if you're gonna do crimes, you, yeah. gotta, you gotta be that person. Well- It wasn't me. So after all these um, kind of you know false starts and, and suspects, now they've got to be feeling pretty good that uh, about having caught the people responsible, right? Well, due to the threat of lynching, because remember, this community is like you find us some suspects, we're gonna fuck them up. The, the term mountain justice, vigilante justice. These people, uh, when you commit certain types of crimes, um, obviously you hear this tied a lot to racism, you know, back in the day, but um, lynchings were not reserved for racists to use. Lynch mob, mob rules in lynching was for anyone who, um, who done fucked up, who done did some horrible shit in the community. The, and it doesn't make it right, but it happened, it happened a lot. They want justice, and they want it now. And that justice is going to be your death, and they want it done in front of everybody. Well, due to the threat of lynching, 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 the trio had to be taken to Cattlesburg instead of being held in Ashland. Despite having been moved, there were still lynch mobs who gathered outside in Cattlesburg. What the hell? Folks were outraged to learn that Ellis and Neil had gathered outside of the Gibbons' house while it burned along with the other neighbors, and that one of the men had driven the hearse at the teenagers' funerals. Another perpetrator had been a pallbearer. Oh, my God. So this is just pissing the mob off more and more when they find out these details. These were married men, which was another salacious layer to this story. Like, how dare these married men do this? This is horrible. And then, you know, they're at the funeral. They're driving a hearse. They're the paw. I mean, it's just, it just pissing people it's off. It's really pissing people off. More and more. The lynch mob grew bigger with men from Ohio and West Virginia making the trek after hearing news of the brutal slangs. 
On January 5th, news spread to Cattlesburg that a train filled with 400 angry men and ropes was heading to take what? care of the villains. <laughs> Dude, that's a lot of people. Okay, that's so a lot of ropes. You are, yeah, but they just got like boxes of ropes, bro, loading them on the train to my. You can't never have too many ropes. See, I'm just imagining there's like cars of people <laughs> and then cars of ropes, and the ropes are smoking. Like you just get me to Calsburg as fast as you can. I'm gonna get these some. Bitches. Come on, touch me, Jim. See how slick I am. Them necks is gonna break. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm a slick rope. Oh, <laughs> why is it gotta be ropes? Not slick, bro. They oil the ropes up so it breaks the neck, bro. I, that's historical fact. These oil, these ropes are slick. You leave your oily rope at home, Dylan. <laughs> Nobody true. wants to have anything to do with your these, oily rope. These ropes have been treated. <laughs> Why does that gross me out? Slick rope? Thinking about an oily rope. I don't know. Just anything oily grosses oh me out. Oh, my God. Urban Dictionary, that one. I had to spray these metal trays with um, WD-40 today. <laughs> okay. And they were just all like greasy. And glistening. And it was like, ew, that's pretty gross. You know, glistening's almost right there with moist as far as a word. Yeah. Yeah. Glistening. They're like trays that you put bodies on, by the way. Oh, is the body just like, like, pew? Like, yes. Like, you, you, yeah. Like if you baby all the, um, Waterbed mattress, you know, and Dylan, jump on it. I didn't want to be the one to tell you this, but dead people love a slip and slide. Oh my gosh. Okay. Police chartered a steamer called Mountain Girl to take the prisoners off um, to Maysville, which was in Mason County, for protection. A party of 50 men escorted police along with the three men to this boat, the steamer boat called Mountain Girl. The train arrived just as the men loaded onto the steamer. The lynchers ran to the docks with nearly 2,000 in the crowd shouting quotes like, let's have them, and this is the place to try them. Jesus. So this is a huge crowd. This isn't is like 15 huge, people. No. And they not, had 400 men on a train. And, and so as they And their ropes. <laughs> their slick ropes, oily ropes. And as So as they're moving them around, and, they, and they're probably thinking about because of the nature of the crime. As soon as they had a suspects in custody, they're already thinking, look, we got to control this energy because this is not going to be good. So they're already like, oh, we're going to have to get them. We're going to need extra guys to protect us and to keep them, you know, crowd at bay. And, and they're, so they're moving, starting to move them around the area. To But it's like as they're moving them, they hear rumors of uh, trains of hundreds of people. And, um, you know, and it's like it's getting worse. And it sounds like something out of a movie. It does. Like this train pulls off and all these angry people fall and, and they're rushing to get this down to a story would uh, be a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. So don't steal my idea. So, okay. So they're loading them on the boat hurriedly. 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 That's not real. Okay. So they're rushing to get on the boat. And here's literally... A, I mean, a, harried is a word, but... Is it? Yeah. What does it mean? Well, like, you might be like, oh, this harried new mother, like, she maybe just looks disheveled and hasn't oh, slept. It was, I think I was right. I mean, yeah, Anyway, so they're rushing works. to get on the boat, and here's a, a literal angry mob pouring off of a train and running after them. 2,000 strong. That's a lot of people. About 50 of the men waded into the water to try and get to the steamer, as it is... <laughs> Taking off. So, what the fuck, dude? The sheriff commandeered a small ferry boat called Bessie and swiftly took the prisoners aboard and down the Ohio River to safety. So he got them off the steamer onto 
the uh, little ferry boat. Little it was ferry a boat. Faster boat. Okay, so <laughs> commandeered it. However, the mob was not swayed. About a hundred men climbed aboard the Mountain Girl, overtaking the crew, and took off in pursuit of the Bessie. The remaining crowd cheered. Get him, boys! Yeah. The steamer had to pass by Ashland, and there were already members of the mob who had gotten back on the train to return in pursuit. <laughs> so they, they were like, oh, the boat's going to pass Ashland. We'll just go get back on the train. If we hurry to Ashland, we can catch them where they're... Cut them off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, this is, this is hot pursuit. The sheriff was able to transfer the prisoners to another steamer, Mountain Boy, which was far quicker than Mountain Girl. Carried to Maysville, at one point, it stopped in Portsmouth, Ohio, and military guards had to stave off the angry mobs there. Lynch mobs would continue to follow the men from place to place. At Maysville, prisoners were kept in an area surrounded by armed guards. It was, um, it was kind of set up so that it could keep these killers from escaping. And it also protected them from the lynch mob because this jail was notoriously old and rickety so much that they had a jailbreak every week. So it's a it's in poor condition. It is just it's not very secure. A ramshackle jail facility. Okay. Yeah. So they literally have to basically surround the building with men yes. with guns. Yeah. Almost sounds like the guards have to form a circle around the yeah, inmates. No shit. Stand there. Yeah. On January 6th, fearing retaliation from the mobs, Governor Blackburn directed three active duty militia companies to escort the men back to Ashland. So the governor's decision kind of came in like just as they're loading the men onto this boat, the telegraph. When the boat stopped in Ironton, hundreds of folks crowded near the docks. A majority of iron mill workers were there armed with hammers and axes. Yeah, and I bet these are big burly fellers. They are. The guard was able to keep the mob away from the boat. Ellis, Neal, and Kraft were taken down to Ashland alive. They were sequestered in an upstairs room guarded by 15 law enforcement officers. While in custody, Ellis's wife visited him. She asked that Kraft and Neil be spared if they didn't commit the crimes. But Ellis said he was telling the truth and he was ready to die. On January 13th, a true bill of indictment was passed down and the three men were officially charged with murder. George Ellis was kept separate from the other two because he was considered a witness. Okay, so he's like state's witness. The first to be tried was William Neal. After, uh, I'm sorry, this was for the murder of Emma Thomas. And there's some argument that her name might have been Carico, her last name, but her mother's name was Thomas. So there's not a clear which name she went by. Anywho, uh, after hearing from various witnesses, including Mrs. Thomas, who testified that William Neal had worked for her husband, proving a connection between victim or, you know, with the victim and the perpetrator. And Mr. Gibbons testified that Neal had worked for him as a bricklayer. J.W. Gibbons also heard Neal express his desire to have sexual relations with Emma Thomas. <sighs> Which is his niece. What the freaking hell? Which is Mr. Gibbons' niece. Yeah, that's not that's not okay, bud. Yeah. A man named J.N. House, who had pulled the bodies from the burning building, testified that the bodies were positioned um, in the exact location that Mr. Ellis had described in his confession. Mr. Neal, as it turned out, had many odd statements uh, after the death 
that he had made after death. Uh, to his co-worker, Neil had expressed concern about living only 300 feet away from the burning house that he somehow might be wrongfully accused of the crimes. Neil also told a neighbor that he believed whoever had murdered the children were there that morning looking at the burning house and the victim's bodies. A few days later, he asked the same neighbor if he thought it was safe for him to stay employed at the iron mill. <laughs> okay. Yeah. After being presented with the murder weapons, um, only after um, eight days at trial, the jury deliberated for about 18 minutes, and it didn't take them, I mean, we said, not long at all. 18 minutes? To arrive at the verdict of guilty, and they called for the death penalty. They didn't even wait for lunch. Ellis Craft's trial followed immediately after. The same witnesses, testimonies, and evidence were used just like they had been in uh, Neil's trial. After several more days, the jury again deliberated for 20 minutes and produced the same verdict, guilty. The jury again called for the death penalty. The men would be hanged for the nature of their crimes. Later, a bloody towel was found near the Gibbons property that belonged to Neil. His boss at the iron mill, along with others, accurately described it, and he was seen with it on the night of the murders when he left work. So it's like old sweat towel he keeps on him or something? Or a towel he's known to have on his person? Yes. Oh. Kraft had a lengthy criminal history that included several statutory rapes and disorderly conduct. In October of 1881, so just a few months before these murders, he had taken a shot at a man which grazed his hat, and no charges were filed. The son of a Baptist minister, Kraft was known for wild disruptions of religious meetings. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means. Well, I know that sexual, he's a sexual predator. He's a deviant, yes. He's, uh, seems obvious. Sta- and you said statutory He cases. likes young girls. Yes. So, I mean, there you go. I mean, what else do we he's need to know? He's a creep. He's a fucking creep. Who apparently is excited with religious fury. And apparently gets the Holy Ghost gets all up inside of him. Right? What if he handles snakes? (laughs) I don't know. The mothers reinforced the knowledge that Kraft was no stranger to their families. And three different doctors confirmed Ellis's recounting of the crime by matching the wounds. Okay. So he hit him here and then he hit him there. Blah, blah, blah. Exactly. A 17-year-old named Oliver House who... Um, Kraft had actually boarded at the house's, the house's home, (laughs) Uh, testified that Fanny Gibbons had visited their home on several occasions and that Kraft had made like disgusting statements lusting after the girl. God, this guy's sick. So I I guess they want to prove what they thought in the first place that the, the perpetrator or perpetrators knew the household. They knew the family. They were aware that there was a crowbar stuck under the porch. And you've got all these witnesses who say, like, these two men specifically have talked about having sex well, with yeah. girls. And they they somehow knew the parents would be away. You know, it's probably it's not hard to find out. People often tell other people their plans, you know, if you're going to go away for the day or something. Kraft had also expressed... Uh, to this young man, Oliver House, that he was taking Fanny a Christmas present in hopes that she would have sex with him. God. If I take her this orange and this peppermint, she's going to fuck me. I mean, come on, dude. I'm going to show up in your bedroom with nothing but a bow on. 
Oh, I was like, you're going to bring me an orange? Yeah. So Can I'll, they be a Cara Cara orange? I got the orange. You just can't see it. I love a juicy orange. I got the things I could do with those Cara Cara oranges are so small. Yeah. Are you going to put it in your butt? Or I'm something? putting it in my butt. I got three of them back here right now. Okay. Yeah. Do you like warm oranges? <laughs> I think I just throw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> what is the... What is, War, what's wrong with you? Why does the thought of a warm orange totally disgusting? I feel like this episode is just, it, it's not going to work. We can't, we can't. No. This, people can't hear this. No, we're giving everybody this for Christmas. Oh. Yeah, and pink eye. You're the gift that keeps on giving with your weird, disgusting oranges. Ooh, hot oranges. That's the name of my new punk band. Oily ropes and hot oranges. <laughs> yeah, that's our hit singles, Oily Ropes. Ew. <laughs> Sounds like the name of a turd. <laughs> Despite Ellis's contradictions. What the fuck? We gotta stop. This is great. Despite Ellis's contradictions, I'm completely sober right now, too, which is Me even too. more deranged. I know. <laughs> okay, so despite Ellis's contradictions, Kraft also was found guilty. Um, as I mentioned. So Ellis's trial was delayed until the regular term. And therefore he was sent along with these two others that he had just testified against to um, the Fayette County jail. But he was kept separate from Neil and Kraft. But man, I can't believe you like you're riding in the wagon or shit. You're on the steamer. Like, I can't believe you telling everybody the truth about me. And Ellis is sitting there like, they're looking at me. <laughs> they're looking at me. Hey, watch them. Watch them. You got to watch them. The men refuted Ellis's account of what had happened, stating they were innocent. And later, Ellis would admit to a reporter that he was drunk and lying when he had made the first confession. Okay. Neil and Kraft began professing their newfound religious beliefs hmm. and actually brought several people to their sides. A Charleston, West Virginia detective told a newspaper that the real killers were three black men. Oh, of course. It has to be. The men were allegedly railroad workers who skipped town. But the railroad workers that, you know, were supposedly involved had actually left town like weeks before this had happened. Again. These knuckleheads. Both men were sentenced to hanging on April 14th of 1882, sometime between sunrise and sunset. This marked the end of the Neal and Kraft cases and the trial of George Ellis, charged with three counts of murder. He was actually set for that regular term, as I mentioned, which was like in May. George Ellis went on to claim that Neal and Kraft were innocent and that it was he, along with two African-American men, who had committed the crimes against the Gibbons children. But then... After Neil and Kraft have already been sentenced. Yeah. Right? William Neal's coat, smeared with blood, was found near the crime scene where he had tried to discard this coat. Really? Yeah. After all this time? Yes. Wow. And it was his coat. And it was entered into trial as evidence against Ellis's claims. So then Ellis starts trying to plead insanity. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I've been, I've been lucid this entire time telling the truth, but not really the truth. Here's the real truth. You're not buying that either? Oh, it's sculptory evidence. Okay, I'm going to move along from your bad monologue. On May 22nd. Well, I'm loony. 
Okay. Shush, you quarter wit. Silence, you quarter wit. I don't think you can say that. I will. On May 20, I can say that to you because I'm married to you and therefore I have the legal right to verbally bury you. On May 22nd, Dylan, Kraft and Neil, along with several other prisoners, and I apologize, I don't want to bury you. I love you. uh, Unsuccessfully, they attempted to escape from jail. The townspeople were becoming outraged by lack of decisions um, from the courts, basically, regarding the case. And the news of this attempted escape did nothing but fuel people's anger. I mean, these people were already, like, out in the streets ready to kill these guys. The whole time they've been wanting to get their hands on them. On Tuesday, May 30th, George Ellis stood trial. The prosecution charged him with the murder of Robbie Gibbons. The evidence and witnesses were much the same as those produced in the Neil and Kraft trials. The jury deliberated for about 22 hours this time before arriving on the verdict of guilty, and they sentenced Ellis to life in prison. Ashland citizens were not happy with this outcome, vocalizing their support for the death penalty in this case. They want to see blood. They want them all dead. These people, they like want it to be like a Slayer song. They want it to rain blood. (laughs) Yes. On the Friday after Ellis's sentencing, between 11 p.m. and midnight, 18 masked men hijacked a train to Kettlesburg, where Ellis was awaiting transfer to prison. There, they broke into the jail and kidnapped George Ellis. He was taken back to Ashland, where he was delivered to a large sycamore tree. Damn. Ellis was asked once more if he was guilty of murdering the children. Ellis responded that he, Neil, and Kraft were indeed all guilty and deserved to die. The mob then lynched Ellis and left his body hanging there until the following afternoon. Wow. They used a dry rope so it'd make sure it hurt him even worse. In September, the Court of Appeals ordered that Neil and Kraft should receive new trials due to the contradictions in Ellis's statements, along with all the recantations, recantations that he had had over the course of like a year or just about. The trial was scheduled for November 3rd, but the issue was transporting the men from their holding cell in Lexington to Cattleburg. Kraft's brother proclaimed a mob of 1,500 had already gathered in Ashland. The judge wrote the governor asking that the armed militia be brought back in as security. So 180 men were sent at great expense to the state to protect the defendants. So by now, the nation was watching Kentucky. These murders were some of the most sensational Kentucky had seen in years, if not like its entire history. And everyone wondered about the safety of these men. Would the state let an unruly lynch mob carry out justice? Yeah. That was the big question. Yeah. And, and again, this was when the, the country as a whole was trying to transition and trying to get uh, become more reputable. From the out, outlaw, <clears throat> the lawlessness and outlaws. Yeah, definitely. And so I'm sure this was, uh, is the mob going to win or... Are we going to start seeing more of, uh, you know, this being outlined? Uh, this is how it happens. The state having control over what's Trying happening. to get away from this, like, frontier mentality, right? Yeah. Governor Blackburn needed to showcase that Kentucky was serious about crime and punishment. Word spread that the mob 
had now 2,500 members, and despite military protections, they would have their way with the defendants. As the men arrived in Cattlesburg with military escort, five mob members approached Major Allen, who was like leading this charge, demanding that he hand over the prisoners. Allen replied that he and his troops did not wish to fire upon the crowd, but they would do what it takes to uphold the law. Damn, what a, damn this is awesome. I know. What a standoff. The men were placed on a steamer. That's when about 500 members of the mob stole a train headed for Ashland. <laughs> How do they keep stealing trains? It's not hey, it's not safe to operate riverboats, steamers, or trains around any of this story. Because people are just going to like, come kick your ass and throw you out the window of the locomotive and take the train. The mob fired shots at the steamer from the train. <laughs> so you're on the river, which has a, a plotted course. You can't change. And then the railroad tracks are up beside the river. I mean, it's almost like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. So you, you can't get away from each other, bro. That's great. Major Allen gave orders not to return fire unless it was self-defense. About 100 members of a lynch mob boarded a boat trying to tail the steamer. Again, they're like... Just wilding out, Dylan. You know they're drinking that Mountain Dew. A man reportedly, his name was Coon Bulk. Of course it is. <laughs> I think Coon was a nickname. Fired a shot from the ferry boat at the steamer. That's when Major Allen gave the orders to fire upon the mob. By now, nearly 2,000 citizens had formed along the riverbank to watch this unfolding drama. Well, this is a great, uh, very exciting day. Many stood near the shore close to the ferry boat. So when the soldiers fired at the boat, it went over the boat and started hitting people in the crowd. Bullets ricocheted and people began falling down. One of the persons injured on the ferry boat was actually the Gibbons' brother-in-law, James McDonald. Um, he had married the older sister of, of the two child victims. He had gone along in hopes of dissuading the mob from an attack. Oh, like I represent the family. Like we don't want them. We want these men to yeah. see justice. Yes. Blah, blah, blah. Only five soldiers were wounded. None were killed. Two members of the mob and four bystanders were killed in this melee. Bystanders never can win in these situations. Citizens were displeased with Major Allen and the governor. A newspaper called it, quote, an uncalled for attack that left the blood of innocent men, women, and children on their hands. And some described it as a cowardly massacre. Wow. That's so, so obviously the community uh, as a whole are sympathetic to the mob. Yes. No one's saying if the lynch mob hadn't been there, none of this would have happened, and they would still be in the hands of the system and justice. Yeah, the, the citizens were like, fuck the government, woo! Yeah, yeah. but they're firing on these soldiers— or, or this militia members, and they have nothing to do with it either. They're just regular citizens as well. I like when regular citizens, citizens I've been talking a lot, say fuck the government and go, woo. <laughs> well, I like when people do that too, but still probably shouldn't shoot at, you know, the other members there, woo! the militia members. Are you sure? <laughs> Only if you do it like that. Woo. Okay. A new trial would be held in February of 1883 in Carter County. Residents of Carter County let it be known they had no interest in forming a lynch mob and would let justice do its thing. Again, a verdict of guilty was delivered and Ellis Craft should hang. So on October 12th, he was hanged in Grayson while nearly 10,000 spectators watched. You know, they brought sandwiches. 
possum sandwiches. And like, look, kid, you got to look. You got to see his tongue come out of his mouth. I think they put a bag over their head, don't no, they? they probably do. On April 30th, Neil was sentenced to death. He was finally hanged in March of 1885 after several appeals. So this is like four years it's of crazy. nonsense before this man is hanged. Well, I'm telling you, it seems to me that all the energy in this and going all the way up to the governor and everything, there was more. This was about more than just the murder of these kids. This was about turning point of stopping vigilante, vigilante justice and incorporating and legitimizing these territories more so. Okay, I have like a juicy tidbit that I found mm-hmm. while researching. I have to share it because it's just one of those like, what? Okay. So, ironically, a man named Bill Terrell of Gore Station, Ohio, wrote an 1880s murder ballad about the Ashland tragedy. It's also known as the murder of the Gibbons children. He was later sentenced to life in prison for murdering an entire family named Weldon. What the hell, dude? Now get this. <laughs> it just gets crazier, Dylan. Six years after the Weldon family was murdered, Ter- Terrell's mother was shot and killed by a man named Morgan Richards. Terrell was visited in the uh, prison afterwards under the hope that hearing of his mother's murder might induce him to reveal more about the Weldon murders. However, nothing was revealed during this visit. Not long after his mother's murder, uh, Terrell's physical and mental health began to decline. He was eventually confined to the insane asylum at the prison and was said to, um, to lie half uncovered and in a listless state. And while in, a, in the asylum, he became ill with consumption and died. Oh, my God. So I just thought that was really strange because I'm like, you have this other, he murders a family and then his mother is murdered? Yeah. Like, what is this family doing? And he wrote a murder ballad about a murder? that's weird okay so i was like i have Uh, to i have to add that to the end of the story because what there's a lot going on this needs to be a movie no it could be a movie someone write the script somebody write it up yeah i would love to but i'm just too lazy and we don't know how to write scripts that's not true i took a script writing class (sighs) i minored in film (sighs) would you major in a pain in my ass that's right (laughs) Okay. Whatever, so, Dylan. I majored in love. Yeah, that's what my that's what my specialty is. I majored in being a quarter wit. Yes, and ass marrying you. Ass oranges. That's my other specialty. <laughs> Oily ropes and ass oranges. Yeah, slick ropes and ass oranges. That's right. I was thinking about the other day. We're gonna start a store. The Jerky Boys. Do okay. you remember when the Jerky Boys were like all the rage? Yeah. I was in high school. Is that the guy the guys would call the, the prank pranks? Call yeah. Guys. Oh god, that was huge. And they were so funny and that they had like um Sal Rosenberg was one of the, I loved that character. But there's this one Jerky Boys call where they call like a sports store and he's like, We rented this tennis ball machine. And he's like, <laughs> and things got a little out of hand. Oh God. And he talks about boiling potatoes and putting it in the tennis ball machine and shooting it at his lover's ass. Oh. And he's like, his ass is purple. 
<laughs> and this thing is just going crazy and shooting out potatoes. <laughs> the fuck. Yeah, I don't know why that popped in my head the other day, but I was like, you know, I should go back and listen to the Jerky Boys because that show was pretty funny. It was pretty funny long before Crank Yankers and all that stuff. It was about the it was the Jerky Boys. It's true. So kids, if you're out there and you have no idea what the Jerky Boys are, look at or up. what a prank phone call is. Head on over to the YouTube's. Look sure it up. There. Well, thank you for those. Um, as welcome. we finished up in Ohio and left and moved on into Kentucky. If we had not carried on with our shenanigans, Dylan, this episode would probably be like half its length. And that's okay. <laughs> we. What is wrong with us? I had fun. I had fun. I enjoyed it. We're so chatty. Enjoyed talking to the listeners. And I hope they find it um, useful. I like talking at you guys. Yeah, I like the way you talk. I like talking at you. Mm. Like I'm trying to grunt Like in the first mm. <laughs> We're going to work on Heather's grunting uh, For one thing I don't know Because what is wrong mm. Mm. I can't mm. do it Why mm. are you just like Me eh. <laughs> That's about it Oh beep I just can't <laughs> Alright so thank you for this Heather It was two great stories A good way uh, Given everything that's happened uh, Lately with scheduling and stuff A good way to leave Ohio And move into Kentucky if you would like to write an angry email to Dylan uh, because of his um, multiple things this episode, everything that he said, you can send an email to <laughs> mountainmurderspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, yes, please hit me up there. Let's talk about Teddy Hart. I thought you were going to say, let's talk about sex. Yeah, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good Dylan things and loves the bad things. Some TLC and salt and pepper. Oh yeah, oh, Peppa. Was that? Oh yeah, that is. I'm thinking. What's the Salt and Pepper? No, TLC. They had a song. What was their song? They had a sex song. They had a wait. Is that back in the day? No, I think you're right. I got the waterfalls too, dude. I'm tired. Don't go chasing <laughs> my sister's Talking about at this point when she pulls out of the trailer park and tries Burns to leave you. Yeah. All right. We love everyone out there. We hope this podcast finds you um, in the best condition that you can be. Beware of oily ropes. And <laughs> Watch out for slick hot ropes. Hot oranges. And warm oranges are never a sign of anything good that's happened there. And uh, we hope everyone has a great day. And we are going to do our best to have, uh, we're going to drop this now. It's a little late. This is our Mountain Murders episode. And we're going to do our best tomorrow to do um, a very kind of different, complicated episode about for some our midweek for our midweek yeah about balenciago Ch- pedo normalization all that shit it could go crazy it could get out in the weeds we have no idea how long this episode could be okay so we're going to talk about some conspiracy theories yes okay and some conspiracy fact okay all right bye bye Thanks again for listening to True Crime by Indie Drop-In Network. If you would like to nominate a true crime podcast to be featured, just send me a tweet at Indie Drop-In. I'd also love to hear if one of our featured podcasts is now your favorite show. Indie Drop-In survives off ad revenue and listener donations. If you would like to contribute, please consider buying me a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Indie Drop-In. If you look at the very bottom of the episode description, I put a link in there to make it really easy. Indie Drop-In has many other shows that you also might like. Just go to IndieDropIn.com. All right, see you next week.